This is the Punk Show Podcast. Hey. Cecil. That's me. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? It's Jason, obviously. Yeah, right. How's it going, man? Oh, not too bad. All right. So uh, let's get into it. I'll just uh, kind of chat with you here. So uh, you're a, kind of a hard guy to find information out about. You don't have a Wikipedia page or anything like that. So I... I, uh, I did, but it disappeared. Oh. I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> was that Someone right? made a Wikipedia page for me right when it first came out. And it was pretty extensive. And so then someone was asking questions about me for an interview or something. I said, oh, just go to the Wikipedia page. I'll give you a lot of background. They went there, and, and it was not no longer there. So oh. I went and checked, and I don't know. I don't know exactly the process of how they maintain that. but That's weird. Um, my Wikipedia page has been deleted by, <laughs> by wow. whatever forces are, are in control of that. That's very strange. You would think that maybe you would be the only one who could make that happen. You know what I mean? Like complaining that you don't like your own Wikipedia page or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I only went there and looked at it once. And right. That was the extent of my involvement. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, why don't we start off by talking about the Dayglows um, shows and tour, uh, and then we'll get into some other stuff. So uh, are you involved in this whole tour that they're doing or just the Vancouver? No, not at all. Okay. Um, no, um, actually, this show came about because um, Murray had uh, an interest in coming out and playing in Surrey at the Flamingo Hotels, uh, where we had um, we had put uh, some shows together there for the last year. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with what was going on out there, but... No. You, do, you, do you know about the Flamingo Hotel in, out in Central Surrey? No, I actually, I know nothing about it. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's an old, rundown hotel, um, very similar uh, to the Waldorf that was built in the same period. It had a notorious... Uh, strip bar in it called the bird okay it had a, a big rock and roll club that held about 350 uh which they called poncho and lefties and then it had a lounge see poncho and lefties rings 100. a bell i'm sure i've heard that before okay yeah yeah Carry on, sorry so it's an old building with a lot of history you know a lot of rock and roll anyways it got boarded up and um uh david geertz and dion uh costanzo uh costanza um actually uh got a hold of the place and i uh, got it reopened and they uh, promoted shows there for about a year. And myself and my partner, uh, Donna Mabbitt, mm-hmm. formerly the Donna Robertson of the Town Pump, the manager of the Town Pump, yes, uh, got together and uh, supplied the sound systems for, for the place. Okay. And so uh, and we were just about to start booking shows there. And uh, the city of Surrey uh, uh, and I guess the landowner or whatever uh, uh, changed the zoning uh, and so the building was no, no longer profitable as a live music event, so it had to be closed down. Oh, bummer. And uh, anyway, so to get back to the Dayglo's uh, uh, part of this, um, Murray had, a, had uh, wanted to break out into the into that market in Surrey, you know, and have the Dayglo's out there because, you know, there's quite a scene out there right now. And, uh, and so we booked a show, but then uh, after we booked the show, the word came down about the venue, so then we decided to move it to... Uh, the Smiling Buddha or SBC. Right. And so that's that's what how that came about. And then since we were doing that, I decided that it would be really cool to put them together with um, a band that you wouldn't normally find playing with uh, the Dago Abortions, and that band is called Wrong. Are you, are you familiar with Wrong? I am uh, vaguely familiar with Wrong, yes. I think uh, I think they're great, what I've heard of them, and uh, but I don't know a whole lot about them. Yeah, they're really And it's just R-O-N-G, like right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, they're you know it's an all female band, uh, but uh, they're by no means lightweights. They they play 
they play hardcore rock and roll like really well awesome. and it's got a bit of a uh, melodically speaking it's got a bit of a, a russian sort of flavor to it okay um you know kind of like think uh boney m like rah rah rasputin you know that kind of vibe <laughs> only with like you know uh heavy metal uh melodic uh or uh, harmony guitar solos kind of thing wow yeah it's it's killer and they're, they're extremely pro- proficient musicians and great entertainers and um a lot of the melodic uh, components of their guitar playing totally reminded me of what uh murray was doing when i produced uh along with him and uh, John Wright mm-hmm. uh, from No Means No, the uh, Two Dogs Fucking album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you might want to use the French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do, do she I don't know. What is, is, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I can't remember because it was on the cover, right? That's okay. I don't know if you can say that on your radio. Station. We can. My show is uncensored. It's all good. Oh, great. Yeah. So yeah. You can say, uh, you can say, Dago Abortions, Two Dogs Fucking album. Absolutely, you can. And you just Absolutely. did. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, so anyways, yeah, during the course of that, uh, recording that record, uh, a lot of the uh, guitar solos that um, Murray and Mike uh, did mm-hmm. um, totally remind me of uh, what uh, wrong, the, the girls in Wrong are playing. Very and, cool. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, 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 I sort of seized upon that similarity and the fact that Wrong is actually building up a, a real sort of uh, popularity base uh, here in East Vancouver. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, that would be a perfect combination. So uh, even though they're not really an opening band, you know, they've, they've transcended that. They should have actually been playing right before uh, the day goes. But they agreed to open the show so that we could, you know, get a, a large crowd in there early in the evening. Oh, okay. And then we're going to sandwich uh, Ostringer in the middle. I don't know if you've got, uh, Ostringer's got onto your radar yet. But no, also, I have not heard of Ostringer. Yeah, they're also another extremely good band, uh, coming from East Vancouver, and um, they also have uh, some musical similarities to um, to the Dayglows without sounding like Dayglows, but there are elements to their music that are reminiscent of uh, early Dayglow stuff. So wow. I, I wanted to put them in there texturally and, you know, to enhance the flavor, but yet make it a show that's not a traditional Dayglow show, you know, where they, you know, get, two jacks teams bands and yeah, yeah. and the dayglows right you know? yeah yeah for sure uh, you know so it, this is not going to be like a typical uh dayglow abortion show um we're going to have um uh tim uh, bogdachev uh or otherwise known as russian tim russian tim and pavel burres that's right yeah he's, he's great gonna, he's gonna em- he's gonna emcee the whole night and uh with that guy there's never a dull moment you know he'll he'll keep the, he'll keep the night very entertaining uh so he's gonna emcee the whole night he's I got a lot of experience from doing that from Russia. And when I contacted him about it, he uh, basically said, yeah, I can't believe that people don't do that over here. People used to pay me to do that in Russia, right? Yeah, you don't see that, do you? You don't really see like a a master of ceremonies host of the evening. That doesn't happen too often with punk shows, for sure. Yeah, Exactly. And we used to do that all the time in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. It was very common for us to do that, especially in in The Smiling Buddha. So I, I decided I wanted to, uh, you know, reintroduce that that kind of an idea. Cool. And and also uh, we're going to have uh, Chris Walter yes. do a reading out of the Dayglows book uh, right before the Dayglows play. Wow, that sounds like an awesome evening. It really does. That's yeah. really cool. And he's going to set up a merch booth, so yeah. you're going to be able to buy uh, going to be able to buy Chris Walter books. There. Well, one of the 500 books that he's released over the last uh, 20 years or so years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thank God for the guy. You know, I know he's, he's the only well one of the few. That are chronicling our scene, you know, both with fiction and fact. Yes. And, uh, 
you know, uh, I think we, we, we owe Chris a lot of gratitude, you know, as a community because he's basically our historian, yeah. you know, in, in a lot of ways. Right. So I totally agree. You know, I really wanted to tip a hat to him, you know, and have him come down. I mean, to me, you know, uh, Donna and I both are really, really hell bent on, uh, bringing the smiling Buddha back up to, you know, the, the days of when it originally, uh, kickstarted the punk rock scene in Vancouver. And, and the, you know, it's a very vital uh, place and, it, it, you know, it, it's a huge part of the history of the community, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, we want to, we want to break out of those, this small little crowd that kind of, um, populates the place right now and expand outwards into a lot of people who maybe haven't been there for a long time and, or haven't been there at all. Well, let me, let me ask you a little bit, a little bit more about that because, um, I mean, some people may not even realize that the SBC club is, the old smiling Buddha. Do you know what I mean? Like when they just see the, th- the, the, the acronym or whatever. And so we, uh, you know, anybody who knows there a little bit about the Vancouver punk scene in history knows how important the smiling Buddha was. So when did it reopen and like how involved are you, are you like, and pardon me for maybe not knowing this, but you know, what's your title? Are you, are you booking shows there? Are you a part owner of it or, or how? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, the owner is, uh, Malcolm, uh, Eric Cassim. Okay. And, uh, he started it with, uh, Andrew Crawford Turner. So the two of those guys are, they were just young kids in, the, in, in around East Van, uh, during the heydays of the Smiling Buddha, but they knew about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the place was sitting, uh, in ruins for 10, 10, 15 years or something like that. And they decided to take it upon themselves to resurrect it, you know, and, uh, and make it a vital place again. So they put a big skateboard ramp in there. Yeah. And they were going to go with, uh, the uh sp or the smiling buddha name but they run into some opposition from some of the surviving family members and oh is that right there's still there's still a little bit of uh negotiations and things going on there but ultimately i think the plan is to rebrand it back to the smiling buddha but right now that's why they have to call it the uh, sbc which is basically the initials of smiling buddha cabaret I remember reading, um, I think that, uh, what is it, uh, Neil Osborne of 5440 bought the original sign, and then I think he donated it to the museum or something? Do you know yeah, about that? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, he took it on tour with them. Right. Um, it's a little known fact that um, that um, 5440 started out uh, as one of the original punk rock bands in, in the Vancouver punk rock scene. Sure, yeah. They played like as a trio. I think they played at Hardcore 81, for Christ's sakes, you know. <laughs> wow. They were... Yeah, you know, and uh, and they just gradually grew into the band that we know today. Yeah, but, I always loved fifty four forty. You know, I mean, I you know, I, I definitely love my punk rock, but I mean, I fifty four forty, they have some catchy tunes. Absolutely, they sure do. Uh, Donna and I uh, listen to them uh, all the time in the house. Nice here, and they're all buddies from way back in the scene. You know, they were always hanging around uh, Profile when it was doing recordings. They hung around in City Space. Uh, I don't know if you know about City Space or not. No, not really. City Space was a big warehouse that was just blocks away from the Smiling Buddha down on the waterfront. Okay. Railway, uh, between uh, Railway and Gore on, uh, uh, on, it was on Railway Street between Gore and Dunleavy, actually. And uh, yeah, there was a whole row of warehouses down there. I'm talking like 77 to 86, that kind of time period. And we had a 7,000 square foot floor. It was the fourth floor. And we had roof access, and we had a big uh, nightclub in there that could hold about 300 people. <laughs> wow. And um, we had um, all around the outside of the nightclub. Um, it was surrounded by uh, rehearsal spaces. I had a recording studio. My uh, 
my buddy uh, Stokely Sipe had a video production place. And the people that lived there were people like uh, Ian Tiles and Ray Kondo mm. and myself, you know, those kind of people right. from back in the early days. It was kind of the, the launching pad for a lot of bands. DOA played there a lot. Rank and File played there. Personality Crisis, I think, played there. Cool. Could have been their first show here in Vancouver there. We were kind of like the epicenter of the underground warehouse scene right. in Vancouver. And um, down the, all the way down the street, there was a few more warehouses that were similar. The other three floors in our warehouse was full of all kinds of stuff like that. A whole bunch of warehouses in Yale Town were like that. We had a lot of, um, of space above the storefronts all the way down Hastings between Maine and Camby. Um, so, you know, the scene was pretty big, you know, and between 78 and 86. when we, we basically got snuffed out because of of a Expo 86. Oh, the right, of course. Decided they didn't like the look of our scene. They didn't want us in those buildings, so they came and just basically bylaws and, you know, safe use clauses and things like that. They they ultimately persuaded all the landlords to just basically kick us all out onto the street. Right. Expo 86 kind of did that a lot, didn't they? They quashed a lot of things in their when their way. It sure did, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so that, the aftermath of that is what you see on Hastings and street today mm-hmm. you know and uh, if they'd allowed us to uh to keep our foothold in that neighborhood it would have become like the greenwich village of vancouver or hate ashbury district or something like that that's know? interesting isn't it that's probably very true yeah yeah absolutely it is you know because there were so many of us you know and then of course when you attack people you know that level in, in culture you know we're all a bunch of starving artists you know painters dancers you know, music people and all that kind of stuff. Nobody has a lot of money. So when, you know, we get dealt a blow like that, you know, it takes a decade to recover, right? So it's and, like it's kind of uh, like uh, Expo 86 in, in their efforts to gentrify, they actually it backfired in a lot of ways, right? Because they, they booted you guys all I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. You know, they basically priced us and, and constricted us out of our own, you know, market so that we couldn't we couldn't function anymore. But luckily, uh, you know, during that during that same period, um Bob Burroughs and uh Donna Robertson and uh, Peter McCulloch and you know a bunch of people like that uh you know took a liking to the punk rock scene and started hiring bands like, you know, DOA and No Means No and you know, it started playing in the town pump which then kind of spilled over into the Commodore. Right. You know, because of Drew and uh so our scene was infused again with capital, you know, because the mainstream audiences, you know, we'd, we'd, they did basically thrust the punk rock scene in the face of like a previously mainstream audience. And all of a sudden there was capital and cash flow again. And that's how uh, I managed to, uh, with a few friends, uh, pull together Profile Studios and, uh, you know, because this is in the pre-digital era, right? You know, yeah. so building recording studio in those days with two-inch tape machines and $100,000 mixing consoles and, you know, $10,000 monitor speakers, you know. It was like a $300,000 investment Jeez. in which we we got the money from, you know, loan sharks and people like that to pull it, pull it together. And then the cash flow from the bands that were playing the Town Pump and Commodore shows uh, basically kept us afloat and enabled us to pay off the, pay or partly pay off the, expense of operating a studio and that's where those records came from mm-hmm. you know that wrong and small parts isolated and destroyed well i'm gonna i want to uh, stop you there for a second because i want to this is what i want to get into now and i want to just preface it for a minute so um 
I'm a little bit younger than you, uh, and I grew up in Victoria, so um, I was introduced to punk when I was probably about 14 or so, so we're talking about 1984, 1985, around there, and, uh, you know, it was Dayglows, actually, were probably the first band I really ever listened to, and then it was the Dead Kennedys, and then I bought an album called Small Parts, Isolated and Destroyed by No Means No, and, like, changed, honestly, everything for me, Cecil, and and so... (laughs) Uh, you know, as a young kid getting into it, you know, uh, buying the vinyl and looking at all the liner notes and stuff, that's really where I first saw your name. And I kept seeing it popping up as I was, you know, buying more and more records and stuff. And so, uh, first of all, it's very cool to finally talk to you, but it's you were involved as a producer and engineer and such in some iconic albums. And um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about that and, and Profile Studios and that. Like, how did that all come about? I want, And we don't need to necessarily get into the the full story, but like, you know, where does your musical background come from? Did you uh, well, start as a musician? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you a quick synopsis of how I got involved as a music producer. And it's, it's because I came from a poor hillbilly family. And, okay. uh, I never had any uh, musical training of any kind. I was excluded from all, anything artistic in high school. Cause you know, they considered our class like uh, industrial, right? So, I basically was predestined to become like a sawmill worker or logging truck driver, something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, so when I was a kid, um, uh, I, I basically developed like a deep appreciation for music going back to my elementary school days, you know, when, um, the monkey show, you know, we're talking like 1961 to 1973. That wow. was from my school years. Right. Yeah. So, um, when I was in elementary school, like saying grade five, grade six, that's when the monkeys TV show was, was on. And so, you know, I, my first, uh, indoctrination to, to music was, well, the first time I ever saw any live music was my brother's or my, my, my cousin's surf band called the sky riders. And that was in 1962. So they were like an authentic, uh, instrumental surf band. Cool. And I was, but I was like, uh, basically seven years old and I used to sit in the basement while they practiced. So I got up close to, you know, bass drums and guitar at an an early age. So, you know, that, that planted a little bit of a seed. And then by the time I was in grade five, you know, the monkeys came and, you know, bands like Herman's Hermits, Paul Revere and the Raiders, the Turtles, the Fifth Dimension, you know, Vanity Fair, all those like, you know, hippie bands, uh, you know, and mod bands, you know, from that, from that, um, you know, early to mid sixties period. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I got into high school, you know, it was Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you know, Flying the Family Stone, Eric Burton and the Animals, you know, Grand Funk Railway, Deep Purple, sure. you know, Uriah Heat, Byron Butterfly, <laughs> The Stones, Steppenwolf, CCR, you know, all that stuff. Right. But I never had, I know there was no such thing as a Walkman or anything like that. Right. And, and so I lived way out in the bush up in, uh, Terrace, BC. Do you, oh, know, do you know where Terrace is? I know Terrace. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Anyway. Okay. So, and I didn't live in town. I lived like, you know, on a kind of a hillbilly enclave, like about six miles out of town, you know, up some, you know, bulldozed dirt road into the bush, halfway up a mountain, you know, and everyone lived in, you know, just like these rundown ramshackle old trailers and, you know, so that was the community that I grew up in. So in order to go anywhere when I was a kid, you know, I had to hitchhike, right? On gravel roads, you know, with <laughs> just these huge logging trucks roaring by, like narrow gravel roads, you know, along the side of a river, you know. And uh, and so uh, because I didn't have, a, you know, any kind of music playback system, 
all that that music just used to play in my head, you know, right. like a playlist, right? Oh, okay. You know, and all these songs, you know, because you know, if you just make do and you're, if you don't have uh, like the technology to play that music for yourself, your brain will remember it and play it, you know. So I think all those hooks and all that that music that was just constantly in my mental playlist kind of set the stage, you know, for when I finally arrived in uh, Vancouver and. In 1973, I hitchhiked down from Terrace during a just a devastating uh, snowstorm. And I didn't have any chance of work or any way to feed myself, so my roommate and myself, I just got on the highway and hitchhiked to Vancouver and lived on the streets uh, around uh, basically where the Smiling Buddha is right now. Yeah, okay. And Hastings in Maine. Okay. And, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, seeking refuge in that place when I was uh, young, and so I was started going to the Smiling Buddha, you know, starting from 1973. And then um, there was a, a band that was uh, made up some of my, my high school mates that came uh, came to Vancouver. They were called Banshee. It was like a, a cover band that played the, the what, what you would call the Top 40 circuit mm-hmm. uh, now, but it wasn't called that then. It was just live bands, right? Because there wasn't a lot of original music around. So anyways, my... Uh, my buddy uh, Tony DeMaderos was the sound guy, and Bob Muckle was the, the drummer. And uh, so I started hanging out with them and uh, learning about live sound, you know, around 1975. And uh, they, uh, on off weeks, when there was no uh, no big shows for them at places like the Body Shop and Lassiter's Den and, you know, the Zodiac out in New Westminster. And I think it was called the, the Surf Cabaret in Victoria down on the waterfront. There was a whole network of these kind of places. Anyways, when um, they weren't, when they didn't have a nice paying gig, they would go down to the Smiling Buddha and they got a a trio gig playing for the exotic dancers that were at the Buddha at that time. (laughs) And so I used to hang out with them in the the Buddha, like in a 76, 77 kind of time period, 78. And uh, that was right at at the time when punk rockers started walking in. So I met the first of the punk rockers, people like uh, Jim Bascott from the K-Tells and Art Bergman. And, right. Uh, you know, uh, Ray Kondo used to be uh, called Ray Trombley back in those days from the Secret Vs and Naomi, Naomi Moriyama and uh, Billy Barker from the Scissors. And, uh, you know, so and, and also Ray Fulber. So basically that became my little punk rock initiation. And of course, Zippy Pinhead, you know, and, yeah. and all those guys too, right? So that was our little core uh, Smiling Buddha group. So uh, I started stepping up to the mixing board, you know, because the sound was so bad. And I had a couple of years of live sound mixing experience at that point, And there was nobody in the punk rock scene that had that. So I just ended up getting drafted into the punk rock scene as a live sound mixer. That's amazing. And uh, then I... I, uh, I I got a job at Commercial Electronics in Vancouver, and and I spent all the money that that all my surplus money above uh, bare subsistence mm-hmm. rent and food on recording studio equipment. And uh, so I bought an eight track recorder and I put it in um, City Space, which right. was that warehouse that I was talking about. Yes. And I started recording bands. I did some uh, early uh, Art Bergman stuff and. Um, moral lepers and you know bunch of bunch of sort of uh, underground bands at that time, and then Billy Barker and Ray Fulber from the Scissors had uh, a warehouse space up on 18th and Commercial, uh, a party space kind of like a uh, city space, 
and they evolved that into Profile Studios. Okay. And then at a certain point, they uh, they said, you know, why don't you you bring your A track and synchronize it up to our A track, and we'll have sixteen tracks, <laughs> right? And so we decided to do that, but uh, it, it didn't take long before we realized that we weren't going to be able to deliver the quality that we wanted to do. So we went and saw a loan shark and got a $25,000 loan to <laughs> buy a used uh, two inch uh, 24 track. And then uh, you know, ultimately we ended up with two two inch 24 tracks and a big Harrison console. And so we actually managed to take the studio up to the level of studios like Little Mountain and Mushroom Studios, right. stuff like that. But we were heavily uh, alternative and underground. So we were just like a magnet that attracted all that kind of business. Right. And we, we got out doing quick. that. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah. But it should be said that um, it was very much a collaborative uh, uh, process because you know, in spite of the fact that we acquired all of this really expensive equipment, we weren't very good at running it yet because we're all quite young. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so, um, you know, those early recordings with DOA and No Means No, uh, for me, were more like collaborations, you know, where we all learned how to operate the stuff. And John Wright and I, uh, you know, uh, pretty much shared the engineering uh, duties on those early um, No Means No recordings. Okay. More, I was probably taking the lead more in the first record, um, you know, Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed and The Day Everything Became Nothing. Those two projects, they they mostly just played and I recorded by the time we got to wrong, you know, um, I was I was starting to get better, and uh, John was starting to, uh, you know, uh, put more and more of his own input. And plus, he did a heavy pre-production for Wrong. Okay. So that record was pretty much done before they even came into the studio. They gave me an eight-track tape that you could have released. You know, it was, yeah. it was so good. Uh, but anyway, it's a great sounding that, record. You know, I mean, yeah, so all, all the small parts is as well, of course, but. Yeah. Okay. Two different camps, really. You yeah. Know, there was in those days there was the small parts appreciation camp and the wrong appreciation camp, and they were two totally different groups of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but anyways, but you know, I think that wrong was probably the record that I had the the most amount of influence on. I, I was learning some really cool uh, tricks, which I applied to that record, and uh, you know, and created the flavor that that record has. Uh, and then by the time we got to uh, the next record, which was uh, zero, uh, zero, zero plus, plus two, equals. two equals one. Yeah, that yes. one. Yeah. <laughs> then you know it was John getting more aggressive, and he wanted he wanted more more control. And then we we just sort of eventually we parted ways after that that record. But, right. Um, but uh, yeah, so that I guess you could say the most influence I had with No Means No was small parts and also long. Uh, very cool, and of course, you worked a lot with DOA and uh, you and SNFU. Jello, yeah, I did. Jello uh, I as was well. DOA's, yeah, yeah. Well, the whole Jello thing is a bit of a story in itself, but uh, the DOA um, uh, recordings came about because uh, I lived kind of kitty corner from Fort Gore. Mm-hmm. You know about Fort Gore on Gore heard of it. Union yeah, that, Street. That was their like home base kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. it was like an old punk rock house, and I had uh, taken over. Um, the Brain Eaters old original house, which was kitty corner to that. It was a little blue house. And there was a little scene based around that community because, you know, Wank Manor wasn't far away and, you know, the plaza wasn't far away, you know. So we are based around, like, Strathcona and Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, 
you know, because I always used to go to the Smiling Buddha and see the subhumans and uh, DOA, amongst many other uh, beginning bands. And uh, Brian Goble uh, and I got to be really good friends. And so at the point when Brian uh, uh, left the subhumans and joined DOA, he came over uh, just before that for the, the record uh, No Wishes, No Prayers, mm-hmm. Subhumans. I don't know if you know that. Of course I do, not. yes. Yeah, anyways, um, I actually did the uh, pre-production on an 8-track in, in that little blue house for that record. And then I went down to L.A. with them uh, to to record the album, just to assist in the production, because it was released on SST Records, right. Black Flags label. Mm-hmm. And I got to know all the L.A. punks at that point, you know, uh, and we, I, I, I met Susie Gardner, who people know now in uh, L7. Yes. Anyways, yeah, so Susie and I chummed around for, for quite a while when I was down there, and I, I got to meet quite a bit of the scene in the, in the early 80s. And uh, so that's how that kind of all came about. And we stayed at Jello's house in San Francisco in the early Dead Kennedys days and stuff like that. And um, we basically uh, decided to do the, the collaboration albums between uh, DOA and Jello and Snow and Jello because of the the court case that Jello was going through about the Frankenchrist album. Right, the the, the graphic know. inner liners. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. The, the Geiger thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So then uh, I was talking to Jello one night. Uh, I think it was uh, at a show when I was mixing sound for DOA and that Dead Kennedys were on, on the bill in Vancouver. Uh, it probably would have been seven or eighty eighty seven or eighty eight around that time period. Okay. And I said to Joe, because, you know, he was at the point of financial ruin because, you know, he was having to pay all these legal fees. I said, you know, uh, I, I would really like to contribute. I'd like to um, to make a recording with you uh, that you guys could sell, you know, to pay for your legal fund. And so uh, Joe said, you know, let me think about it. And then uh, he called me back a few days later and he said, you know, uh, I really appreciated your gesture, but I don't, I don't want you to have to pay for it. So here's ten thousand dollars. Wow, wow. <laughs> it was kind of a shock, right? Yeah. So uh, he he we we took that ten thousand dollars and we used it to uh, record those uh, those two albums: the Last Scream and the Missing Neighbors and uh, Skies Falling. I want my mommy, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was a really great experience for me. It was basically like a couple of days in the studio and then months of me mixing and uh, sending uh, cassette tapes via mail to Jello Biafra, who would then listen to them and then give me his critiques. And then I go back in the studio and mix and mix and mix. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's really cool. And, you know, if you imagine trying to satisfy Jello Biafra. I'm sure it's not easy. Yeah. No, <laughs> but anyways, the result turned out to be really good, you know, because of that, uh, that process. Yeah. And, you know, still lives on to this day. So. Yeah, both those records are great. Um, I wanted to yeah. ask you, uh, I, I, as as a fan of, well, of all of these bands that we've been talking about, but particularly No Means No and DOA, and, you know, what you were part of and everything else. Like, I, No Means No is a band, obviously we know they're retired now. Um, they were always a little bit kind of coy and secretive about things and... and, and you know, they put out records and stuff. They've got such a fan base now, and there's like there's a, a couple of different Facebook groups that are dedicated to them with thousands of people that are, who constantly talk about collecting their stuff, and they talk about the different old shows and stuff. It seems to me that there really is a an appetite out there for, first of all, some of their stuff to get re-released, but also, like, there must be 
a vault of unreleased takes or you know and that and maybe maybe the nomi's not the kind of band that wants that stuff to ever see the light of day but you know well, are you aware of of that kind of stuff existing that maybe you know no means no fans have not heard that could would sound good enough for <laughs> them to put out you know what i'm saying well at the risk of really pissing off john yeah for sure <laughs> because i know that i know that um those guys heavily recorded themselves constantly you mm-hmm. know first with four tracks and then with eight tracks and i mean they did nothing without extreme preparation. You right. know, uh, uh, they worked a lot with uh, Scott. Yeah. Um, Scott Henderson. Of course. You know who he is, obviously. I've right? had him on the show. Uh, I see Scott's on almost a weekly basis at Logan's Pub. Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So back in that time period, uh, you know, going all the way back to when it was just John and Robbie as a, as a duo, um, they were heavily recording themselves. So I know that those guys probably have vaults and vaults and vaults of stuff that. Mm-hmm. Is never going to see the light of day. <laughs> so <you know>? frustrating. <laughs> There's no way you're ever going to convince John and Robbie to release any of that stuff. But, um, you know, because they were meticulous about who got to hear what. Right? Yeah. That's too bad, you know, because not only yeah. would, would the fans want to hear it, and I'm sure there's enough of it that's good mm-hmm. enough that, that, that hopefully they would think it would be worth sharing. But also, I mean, it could make them a few bucks in their retirement. You know what I mean? It, it, seems, like, <laughs> it seems like a no-brainer to me, but... Uh, that they they, yeah. they never really did things the you know in a way that you would expect. <laughs> no, they certainly didn't. Um, you know, my introduction to them was um, I went over to play a, a gig at uh, Uvic. I was doing sound for Art Bergman in uh, the early days, and um, they were the opening band when they were a duo. Okay, you know, so I I can't remember the year, but um, would have been like early eighties. And, uh, yeah, so I got to meet those guys uh, for the first time, and I uh, was really pleased to see them grow into, you know, to know that we know and love today. Absolutely. But they were great right from the beginning. Like, the first time I saw them, you know, just as a duo, they just killed it. Um, all right, Cecil, I don't think I have a whole lot more. We should, I should wrap this up because, of course, I'm in this stupid little studio that is very popular and people book it, so I'll have to get out of here in a few minutes. But uh, I want to just quickly ask you, uh, first of all, the DOA album Fight Back that came out last year is... Uh, I think I said this to you on Facebook. It's one. Of, I, I think some of their best work. It really. It's just, it just sounds so great, so relevant, and all that stuff. You were involved in that, of course, uh, producing. I believe. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah well, I co-produced with Joey. Right with Joey. As okay. Always, right. Yeah. Fair you know enough. those guys. None of those guys. You you get to completely produce the record. They're they're very hands on. You know? Yeah. I mean, they've been doing it long enough that they they know what they yeah. want and everything else. Um. So how you know? And so what's next for you? And 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 uh, another question, I guess, is so Profile Studios. Does it still exist as Profile Studios? Um, I think it does. Um, did you ever remember the band Red Sugar? No, Sean I don't think Holloway so. Chuck? And they were kind of a, a thing, you know, in, in the early 90s. Sean's, uh, he hails from Kamloops. He had a band called Desperate Minds, and they toured all over North America. I remember America Desperate Minds, yes. I have, I have 16, 17 years old, you know. Anyways, uh, I, I did some early recordings for Desperate Minds, and, and then they later changed the name to Red Sugar. And Sean ended up being my partner for probably a 10 year period at profile. Okay. And ultimately he, you know, basically bought me out to save, save me, uh, at, at a point around, uh, 1999. All right. And, uh, I know that he still has the, the two inch machine and, uh, and the uh, old Harrison console somewhere set up. And I, I know, I, I think he still calls it profile. Okay. Um, it's not in the same building at all. No, no, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Um, but what as far as as far as what you what's what's on your plate now? Are you can you can you divulge anything that you're working on now or that you're going to be um, working on? 
Well, you know, um, economics dictates that I make most of my money from installing sound systems in uh, venues with my partner, uh, Donna Mabbitt. Yes. And, uh, and doing live sound, like, you know, usually both nights of the weekend, and hopefully a couple of weeknights if I can find the work. Sure. Um, and then I still have a basement studio in, in my house uh, near First and Commercial. Okay. That's where we recorded Fight Back, and I'm working on the Ostringer album. I just finished an EP for The Gag. I did a Motorama album. You know, so I'm I'm just uh, trying to uh, you know keep my uh, keep my producers chops up, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, as much as I can. But you know, it's it's difficult, you know, because I'm constantly balancing, you know, where I can make enough money to survive, you know, with uh, you know my creative uh, drive. Well, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, and everybody's got that struggle for sure, and especially in a town like Vancouver that ain't cheap. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Eh? Um, I was I, just thinking about that today, yeah. about how, you know, it's actually driving up the quality of uh, our underground music scene because the survivors that are still clinging on with their fingernails are a tough breed, yes. you know, and, uh, you know, so now the cream is rising to the top a little faster, and I think we're going to see some really good stuff, you know, come out of uh, this whole economic uh depression that we're in. I think you're totally right, and I, you see it in a little bit in Victoria here as well, but uh, there's, like... Um, some really great punk music coming out of Vancouver right now. There's, uh, you know, every time I turn around, it seems like there's a band I haven't heard of before that I listen to and I go, holy shit, this is amazing. You know, there's a band, Sore Points, I don't know if you know them, and yeah, totally. uh, and Wrong, like you mentioned as well. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's... Oh, there's dozens. Yeah, there's, there's dozens. literally dozens of vibrant. bands yeah. that are just killer, right? Yeah. I see them all the time in SBC, you know, yeah. we have just this amazing lineup. And I think you're right, the unaffordability actually does spawn that for the folks that are, are are trying to find a way to survive through that well it's called the herd you know oh, okay I mean, you know yeah. for a long time you know it was just so easy to exist in a, in a world wallowing in mediocrity you know but <laughs> yeah. now you know mediocre just doesn't fly yes you know and and uh, you know if you put on a mediocre presentation then you uh, have a drooling box office and you know and and people can't do that you know and they've got you know fifty thousand dollars a month leases on their clubs that they got to pay you know no and, kidding you know what i mean and yeah. uh you know the everybody there and in, in, in the place is dependent you know if the if the club doesn't make the money the bartender doesn't make any money you know uh, you know so uh you know everybody complains if uh unless the place is packed right so yeah so you gotta stand out and you gotta bring quality that's right. Mm-hmm. So that that rise in quality is, uh, you know, you could probably draw a parallel universe to, you know, what happened in New York and, uh, you know, in the early to late 70s, you know, when the whole city was fell into a state of uh, economic depression mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden started rising, you know, they were cleaning it up and, you know, the price of all of those cheap uh, neighborhoods started skyrocketing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, only the best stayed and survived, you know, and that's how you got the CBGB scene, right? 100%. Um, that is awesome. Well, Cecil, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I want to just reiterate uh, what uh, the original reason we were going to talk, which is this Day Glow show that sounds really, really cool, uh, happening on April the 12th at C, uh, or SS, SBC, sorry, excuse me, um, along with Wrong, and, sorry, what was the other Aust- band called? Ostringer. Ostringer. And then Aust- you've got Chris Walter. Hey, yeah. Ostringer. <laughs> I'm very curious. I'm going to look this up after I get off the phone with you, by the way, and check these guys out. Um, and then Chris Walter doing a book reading, and, and you got Russian Tim emceeing. That does sound like a really unique, awesome night. Um, 
thanks for talking to me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and the day glows are on fire these days. Like Murray's, he's got his got his hands back now after yes, operation surgery. And, yeah, uh, you know, and uh, the band is just killing it these days. It's like if you've been putting off going to see a day glow show. You know, don't any longer because this show at uh, SBC on April twelfth is just going to blow the doors off. Fantastic! Yeah, I agree with you. They are definitely they're they're at a peak right now for sure. Um, right on. And thanks for all the music that you've been uh, that you've had your hand hand in over the years. Because, like I say, no means no. DOA, all those bands were so important to me and uh, still are. And uh, and I so thank you for that. Well, and, you know, also I'd like to thank you for having your radio show. Thanks. Because without the kind of things that you're doing at that radio station, which I've been listening to actually for over the last week, it's a killer station. I really like that station. Oh, I thank wish you we had very one much. Like in Vancouver. Um, but anyways, yeah, without the uh, efforts of people like yourself, it wouldn't be much of a scene. Yeah, well, that, you know, I really, I really do appreciate those words. And I'm very lucky because, you know, my regular job is on the morning show on this station and, and, uh, you know, where we goof off and we play all this modern rock. And and uh, I'm proud of the station in general, but the fact that they allow me to do this punk show uh, and run it on the air without any commercials and no censorship, and uh, it, it's been a really amazing experience. So oh, yeah. Th- no, thanks. And thank God that, you know, there's a station like that in Victoria. That's that's totally killer. Yeah. I'm glad you're a big part of it. Um, you're the perfect man for the job. Right on. Well, that is very kind of you, Cecil. And I hope to me- actually meet you one of these days soon. Maybe I'll try to get over there for the Dayglow show. I... Don't know if I can, but uh, if not that, we'll, see, we'll hopefully see you soon. Well, that would be awesome to see you there. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Have a great day, man. You too. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. This has been the Punk Show Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, including kick-ass punk music, go to thezone.fm slash punk. Oh, yeah. And be sure to check out the Punk Show on Facebook and Instagram.